podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Well, hello there and welcome to Talking Tennis. And this is WTA Weekly. I'm very happy to have Vunch here alongside me, um, fresh from the ground on San Diego. Vunch, how are you doing? Doing great, Nick. Uh, had a great week and really excited to talk some tennis with you. Hi, I'm, I've been excited to talk tennis with you, it's, um, especially since, uh, I'm going to be honest, I'm going to be relying a lot on you this episode. Um, not only because you probably would have seen the majority of matches that took place uh, from being on the ground in San Diego, which is the, the kind of the main talking point, I think, uh, from this week. But also due to the time zone that San Diego was in, um, it was impossible for me to watch most of the matches. Um, <laughs> the final started at midnight my time. Um, so um, only some bouts of sleeplessness uh, meant I could actually keep up with what was going on. So um, those of us, obviously, American fans will probably know about this and and, and see everything. Um, and Ghost is right to say that Avanche is the American of the hour for what will be a very American-themed show because, well, let's face it, this week's been all about the performance of um, a lot of Americans, yet it wasn't an American who won San Diego. <laughs> it was Bar- It was a check. As but as per usual, um, Barbora Krajikova is the San Diego champion in singles and doubles. Um, so Vanch, talk to me. I didn't see the final. Um, how would you summarize the match? Tell me what happened. Sure. I mean, the final was actually very good, very high quality, really good level. Um, I was very very pleasantly surprised to see the, the stands completely packed uh, on on Saturday. I guess uh, you know that just made me happy because uh, the tournament was having some attendance issues earlier on in the week, but the later on we got during the week, the night matches became more and more packed, and that's what you want to see, obviously, with an event like this. Um, but uh, the the two players in the final, uh, it was it was a great story for for both because they're both resurgent in many ways this week, and this was Kennan's first final since 2020 Roland Garros uh, at the WTA level. So it's been over been over three years and she finally managed to put together some really good wins this week. And, you know, she was a bit, uh, I thought she was going to be a bit compromised going into the final actually because she had her leg taped the whole week. And uh, I was supposed to do, we were supposed to do a full press conference with her after her semifinal win. But uh, what ended up happening is she lost her voice actually. And so she couldn't, she couldn't, um, you know, do the press she couldn't do the on-court interview and then uh during the press conference she kind of have we kind of had to just get some quotes from her and 
she was only able to speak for one minute. Obviously, nice of her to do that. Uh, but coming into coming into the final, the, the final itself, I thought the match was decided on a few key key moments in the third set. Uh, but but the, the way this match kind of unfolded was we saw a lot of court craft, a lot of guile from both players. Krachikova, I thought, was serving the better of the two. Uh, earlier on, she had this one game in the first set where she had four aces and got out of it. And three of them were in a row. And I was like, oh my goodness, she's just turned into Ivo Karlovich. <laughs> but uh, but but that that aside, and uh, Kenan brought her usual feistiness to the court. She was um, you know doing those backhand slices that are really hard to read. Krachikova was just had a, a bit more weight on her weight on her shots, and it was actually Kenan who broke twice first in the first set. Uh, the real key game in the first set was at four three. Uh, Kenan was serving at 30 all and Krachikova hits these two amazing forehands, uh, manages to break back. Not a whole lot that Kenan did wrong, to be honest. And it came down to this one game in the in the second uh in at four five, where Kenan had three game points, but Krachikova was able to get her way out of trouble. And uh, you know, each time it was it was some good shot making or just a loose error from 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 Kenan in some big moments, but it was Krachikova who put the pressure on her, and so I felt like it was going to be a it was going to be a tough reset for Kenan. And to her credit, she managed to do it in the second set, and uh, it was a in the, in the second set actually we had some really close hard fought games in the in the beginning. Uh, the crowd was really getting into it because they they wanted to see a comeback from from Sofia, and uh, she had majority of the crowd support, and she was the one that was the more emotive of the two, as you would expect. Uh, you know, just really trying to get it get into it with the with the crowd with her box and just fire herself up a little bit um and the key game there was that uh she she, she went up a break and she was she was up three two and she had to save four break points and that's where she showed her real medal i thought uh kind of reminded me a little bit of some of her of some of the australian open of 2020 that we saw where she was just really really clutch in in some big big points coming up with big serves out wide uh, redirecting the ball into the open court really really well she has this um, way of playing where you just can't read her shots because she's able to disguise them so well and just keep keep the opponent on the move and it's deceptively aggressive. And Krachikova was was starting to miss a little bit more. Her level started to dip a little bit midway through that second set when she didn't break back. But once Kenan held for 4-2, I thought Krachikova was trying to conserve a little bit of energy and start get ready to make a strong push at the start of the third. And I think the final really elevated itself in the third set because that's where we saw both players really play some of their best tennis at the very same time. And the first eight games of the match, Nick, there were no breaks, there were no break points for either player. So if something had to give and, you know, and I was, it was starting to get really tense there at the, at the very end with um, Krachikova uh, serving at four, five, 15, 40. And uh, so if Kenan breaks here, she's going to serve for the match. And she has all the momentum of the second set. And she was looking the stronger of the two players at that moment. And then what ended up happening in that game was every single uh, breakpoint save that Krachikova had, she had to hit a second serve. And she came up with really, really gutsy second serves into the body, uh, forcing Kenan to, to miss backhands because they were so deep and so, uh, so well hit at like 95, 96 miles per hour. Uh, and so she she was doing really well to kind of force errors. Kenan will have some regrets. I think there was one break point where she had a very good look on a second serve at 30-40, and she just missed it in the net. But but I thought it was just guts from Krachikova and, uh, you know, really playing playing some of her best tennis. There was this one really good half volley that she had at Deuce, where she was just able to massage the ball in the, in the corner. And it was some of her double skills that really paid off at, at times in this match with just her good touch and just her ability to manipulate the ball 
move it around the court in, in different ways and spins. And that's what I really enjoyed about this match is both players brought so much, there was so much diversity in every single point and you didn't know what you were going to get. And these two hadn't played each other in over two and a half years. And their last match was on clay in Rome of 2021. So there's really not that much um, data coming in. But it was really cool to see these points kind of play out. And once uh, Krajikova hit an ace to hold, then you knew the next game was going to be really, really difficult for Kennan. And she she did have three game points in the very next game. And after every single game point that she missed, the um, the cameras all looked at her dad, uh, who was more like a dad than a coach in this match, I would say. Just she, she he knows how much this means for Kennan, and he was just deflated after every single miss and just kind of shrugging his shoulders, putting his head down. And so um, there was some talk about that, of course, but uh, I, I think it was just a well played match overall. I looked at the stats at the end and. Uh, there were more winners than unforced errors for both players, and that's you know not always the case in in some of these big big matches. And uh, and at, at, and at the end, I think it was Krajikova's clutchness on her second serve. She won ten out of fourteen points in the third set on her second serve. So that was a really big big stat for her, and that and that all came to fruition in that four all game that that I was just talking about. And so that uh, that ultimately, I think I think made the difference. And uh, she was a bit in and out. From the baseline, uh, Kennan had had the edge on some occasions, but the serves really bailed her out on some really big, big occasions. And if I look at the first set and the third set, Kennan in the first set, two for 11 on second serve points one. And in the third set, she was three for 12. Um, and, you know, she didn't do a whole lot wrong on some of these some of these big points. Krachikova just came up with some... Krachikova really stepped it up. But, um, yeah, overall, just a very entertaining final, a really good finish. Krachikova winning the singles and the doubles. Um, and a lot of positives to take away for for Kennan as well, and she's back inside the top fifty. Uh, she can really build on this, I think, uh, going forward. I wish I'd seen it now, especially when you said it was a it was a match all about Courtcroft. That's exactly the kind of match I enjoy watching. Yeah. Um, sadly, I think it has disappeared from catch up now. So um, I'll have to wait for someone to eventually put it up, maybe. But um, yeah, it was a. It, it sounds like it was an interesting one, and you know. It's interesting the uh, the connection that's getting made here between Krajikova and Clutch, and she's had a few Clutch wins in her career. We're think I'm thinking of 2021 Roland Garros um, semi-final um, against Sakari. Yeah. Uh, uh, um, that win against Sviantek in Ostrava last year, um, the turnaround against Sabalenka in Dubai earlier this year. Um, even that straight set to went against Muguruza in twenty twenty one US Open. Okay, straight sets, but Muguruza looked like she was coming back into that match. Um, Kujikova is a very hard player to put away, and um, she doesn't give up easily. And actually, she showed that in a match I did see, which was the semi final against Danielle Collins. In that yes. she soaked up everything Collins threw at her, and then struck when she needed to. Um, yeah, I think she definitely deserves to return to the top ten. Um, which she is going to now, at least temporarily. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm I'm impressed with her. Uh, um, I'm impressed with her ability to do that, and that's what makes her a top player. So it seems weird to me that she she wasn't top ten before. Yeah, uh, she had a very good week in, in Dubai, like you referenced. She saved all those match points against Kazakina, which was the key, and then ultimately she beat those top three players like in Pagula, Sabalenka, and then obviously Iga in the final. And since then, we kind of, you know, everyone was talking about, oh, maybe there's a big four. 
like Ghosty is referencing in, in the chat, but I think that kind of got in her head a little bit because the next three tournaments, she lost to Sabalenka, if I remember correctly, in Indian Wells, Miami, and Stuttgart. Um, and at that point, I think she made a comment in Miami that, you know, she wants to be more heard and seen as part of the part of the so-called big three at that time of the, of the WTA. But um, I, after that, um, you know, she had, she had a few dips and she didn't have a great clay court season. I remember this one match against Ostapenko in Rome where she had a, a bazillion chances in the first set, but didn't, didn't end up taking it. And granted you're playing Ostapenko, so it's always going to be an up and down match. But uh, from there, she lost, early, she lost the first round of Roland Garros. So then she had an injury at Wimbledon, which she referenced in her post-match uh, conference and I think that really kind of de derailed her because then she stopped working with her coach who was with her at the time and now she just has one person on her team who's just kind of more of a supporting figure in her camp and just helping her temporarily and she said it did not go well for her in the U.S. Open stretch and she lost early in Cincy and Cleveland I believe and, and also at the U.S. Open so she needed a real reset here and I think she was just able to find it she said that the she enjoyed uh, the accommodations that she had in San Diego. She enjoyed the kind of the off-court stuff, going to the beach and just the calm vibe of it all, uh, the weather. I think she just loved the, she loved that she could also go under the radar, I feel like, at, at points in this tournament because there were some matches that she played on center court. Uh, like I'm thinking of the one against Kalanina in the first round where almost no one was watching her because they all wanted to see Ostapenko versus Collins. <laughs> and Ostapenko versus Collins was not on the center court. So they were all they were all in a in a kind of tacked, tightly packed uh, outside court watching watching that happen. And so I think uh, you know she was able to kind of divert the attention a little bit away from her, if that makes sense, and just kind of let her tennis do the talking. And then I think by the time most people really got to see her was was in that Collins match that you're talking about in the in the semis. Uh, so that match and the final were really impressive. From her yeah I, I that scheduling of putting Ostapenko Collins I don't know why that wasn't on the main court because you've got a Grand yeah. Slam finalist against a Grand Slam champion and one of them is American um, um and okay Kalanina is a very good player and I consider her a top class player um along with Krajikova but yeah that was an interesting scheduling choice there um but hey maybe it added to the atmosphere of the smaller court um, so can't complain. Uh, but yeah, I completely agree with you. This this result is the shot on the arm critique of this season needed. I don't think she's the big four. Goff's yeah. um, probably got pole position for that status, but um, she could probably establish herself as someone like uh, a Jabur or a Mukatha or a Pagula or someone you shouldn't count out. Um, but she needs to obviously produce that uh, consistently. At the yeah. minute, uh, which we know she, which, and because we know right when she just produced the level, it's so good. Yes, yeah. it is. It, it, it's sublime because she has such an all-court game where she acts as kind of a pace absorber at times, just deflecting the the pace and big shots of her opponent. But then she also has, you know, a really really underrated serve, where she can just fire aces on a whim, and she has really good spot serves. Uh, she is able to adjust her strokes depending on the incoming ball that's coming at her. And then she has really good hands at the net. And uh, and that that all comes from all of her double success. I love the way she can kind of vary her shots mid-rally as well. Like she throws in more of those loopier, heavier moon balls. And then she gets a short ball that she really wants and she pounces. And then she can finish it off at the net with a 
really reliable net game. And then, yeah, and I just think she she just frustrates you because she's she just uh, is one of those players that's so difficult to finish off because she's just gonna. It, it's it's that clutch factor deep into deep into tournaments of having been in those situations so many times, even though they were in doubles a lot of the times, but also just like she tends to win all of her titles in bunches. And I was noticing this earlier, like she won Strasbourg and Roland Garros, and then she won, and then last year she won Ostrava and Tallinn, and she just kind of car- is able to carry the momentum for the whole week and and sometimes two weeks. With that in mind, um, is she potentially making a mistake with skipping Guadalajara? Uh, you know, I, I we we tried to ask her about that, but it seems like she was just very fatigued after this week because of mm-hmm. those those long matches in the semis and and the final, but also just the emotional toll of the doubles. Uh, mm-hmm. And so sometimes when she goes deep in weeks like these, she, she says that she kind of needs some some time to reset. I mean, I I was also kind of curious about her because she is twelfth in the race right now. And there is there is some opening, especially with how the Guadalajara field is looking. Where like thirteen, the top thirty players aren't even playing, and there's no one in the top seven. And you know the top seed is Jabor, who's not in great form, and Sakari and Garcia aren't all that convincing at the moment. So uh, I, I thought she was going to just go ahead and and play it, but I guess she's she just would be the red hot favorite it. for it. I think if she did, yeah, certainly um, with the form but, coming in, but fatigue. You know, you know, she has to manage that. I did wonder if it was to do with that that maybe she didn't think she could make the trip. Um, yeah, but because San Diego to Guadalajara is is you're crossing time zones. It's a long distance. It's it's not um, it's not as close as maybe people who are less familiar with geography think. Um, but yeah, it's it's something to, to consider. But like that sets up well for the um, the Asian swing anyway, and yeah. going in. So that should be good. Um, let's talk about Kennan. Obviously, yeah, you said that, like, yeah, that both finalists would have been probably worthy winners. It sounded like it was a great match. Um, I think that's basically if Kennan had won, it probably no, no offense to Kuchikovic, probably would have been a bigger story. Um, mm-hmm. because obviously, if where she's come from, um, and you, you're right, she's sort of she's kind of she's back in the top 50 now, she's so close to being sort of back in the big time is it too much to expect that for her to produce this kind of level consistently now i think there's going to be ups and downs just naturally with her game um mm-hmm. just because she doesn't have an overwhelmingly big weapon and i think with with players like that she's just going to go through some more up and down weeks where uh, she might get she might get hit off the court, or she might just not find her range. She might not just be allowed to, uh, you know, work the points the way that she wants to. And I think she's just susceptible to injuries as well. Like mm-hmm. this week, um, she was struggling with the with the sickness, of course, but also just her leg was taped up the whole week. I think sometimes uh, she hasn't been able to practice the way she would have liked the last couple of years. Uh, there's obviously the coaching and dad relationship with her father, which doesn't always mesh well in certain environments. Um, against certain players so I do expect her to kind of have more consistency she already kind of did this year like we, we saw glimpses of it obviously she beat Sapolenka in Rome she had the win over Goff in, at Wimbledon so the top level is certainly there she pushed her back in a, I think she made the semis of Hobart um, and I think with with climbing up the rankings she'll have better draws so that should help her rather than drawing top players always early, early in the first 
weeks. Uh, she is going to be playing in Guadalajara. She is in the draw. So maybe that's another chance to like push her way up and try to get seated by the time the Australian Open is there or finish the year in the top 25 or top 30, uh, where she certainly belongs. And the Australian Open, of course, is where she won her major title, her, her current only major title back in 2020, um, where I think she was one of the players of the season. It was obviously Australian Open champion, Roland Garros finalist. Um, I don't think she was really talked about enough. I don't remember the hype being as big for her as for other young players who were coming through at the time, like Asaka, um, who was kind of probably stole, sell a lot of the headlines that year. Um, What, why do you think that is? And maybe just remind us sort of, what was it about Kennan's game that took her to that major title? Well, I think she's just, She's just a tough player to game plan against because of the of the way she kind of manipulates the shots and she she's so uh she's so I guess I, I guess the way she always describes herself as feisty. So I just go with that because that's what I heard a bunch in the press conference. But she's just she's almost like a, she has this she has this like street fighter mentality where it's just she's just gonna grit grit her teeth and just just scrap her way into the fight. She's like a scrapper. And she she's deceptively quick. She moves, she moves really really well. She has she, her her ball toss is one of the most most and service motion is one of the more funkier ones you'll see because she doesn't actually make contact with the ball as she's tossing it, and she kind of looks at it briefly. But after she's already hit the ball, and it's just it's very difficult to kind of read where that serve is going, where it's going. Uh, like uh, is she going to serve YT? Like most players, you can just kind of tell by the by the ball toss or where they're kind of looking while they're why they have it up in the, in the motion. So that could be part of it. And also she's just um, she's just very clever in terms of how she she has two hands on the back end, but she'll just take one one hand off and just kind of go to the go to a short slice or go to a drop shot when you're least expecting it. I think she's just she just had when all that momentum and confidence is working with her, she's just been able to frustrate a lot of players with her unorthodox game. And so that's what I think made her so so successful. I do think of the Quicker conditions would help her a little bit more, just because of it would just help her shots penetrate. Penetrate, they stay very low. She doesn't hit the ball with a tremendous amount of spin. So um, it certainly surprised me when she made the final of Roland Garros because she lost. That was that was a weird one for me because she lost to, to uh, Azarenka in Rome, six zero six zero, and no one was really expecting her to make it. I guess she just kind of gritted her way out of some tough fourth round quarterfinals in that tournament. Um, but she can. Certainly, she has certainly shown it on all surfaces. She has a title on grass too. She has five WTA titles, I believe. Hmm. So, I do and think maybe maybe something about what was my earlier questions like why was it underrating it? Maybe it was to do with that 2020 season, despite those two strong slam performances. That yeah. six love six love lost to Azarenka took a lot of the wind out of her sails, and I think her US Open was a little underwhelming. Did she make fourth round something like that? And I think more was expected, obviously with the momentum at the home stand, but COVID probably had a lot to do with that. Yeah, I, I think it was the COVID as well, like because uh, not many American audience were tuned in for that Roland Garros. Just because it was in the fall and like other sports were starting to come back. The vibe was a little bit different than your May French Open. So that could have something to do with it. And also maybe just there was a lot more hype on, on Goff at the time and she beat Goff in the fourth round on the way to the title at uh, at AO. Everyone just kind of remembers her 
when they do hype her up, the people that do, they remember her for that two all the 40 game against Muguruza in the third set, where she just hit like four winners. And then and then Muguruza just couldn't hold serve after that. But um I'm also I'm also wondering if it, it's just maybe just the way that she carries herself. It's she doesn't have a tremendous amount of excitement when she wins. It's almost just a relief, you know? It's almost like a relief of all that tension and stress that's just bottled up inside her when she wins. And um, I think even after she won her semifinal, I was ex- expecting it to be like, you know, a, a kind of an emotional moment. And in some ways it was, but it was more just her going to her, her box and her team and just just really crying because just releasing that that emotion and just she wasn't feeling well. It was It had more to do with her health condition actually rather than actually getting to the final so um maybe there's just some of that but it's tough to pinpoint one reason yeah uh, yeah it's half tough point point it and um, yeah no at the time as well i remember in 2020 i think andrescu hadn't played all year there was a lot of hype from her amazing 2019 yeah. season um Osaka's so, really most of the hype was on Beyond tech was on, obviously yeah. beating her in the morongas final was another young player breaking through at the same time yeah um but, i think it also just happened too too quickly for her where i, I just mm-hmm. don't think she was ready for that spot like quite so soon it wasn't I, I she she was... anything bigger than a 250 at that point okay she'd won three in a year which is very impressive very few players do that yeah um, i think she was 21 when she won um i think she was 21 when she won australia and mm-hmm. she had had a good year the year before that but no one was really expecting her to go all the way and win the australian open uh, and take out the players that she did. I think it was the it was not expected of her to to all of a sudden win a major. And then I, I didn't up. expect it. <laughs> she was kind um, of in that ten to twenty range. Yeah, um, it's interesting what you were saying about Kenan's game as well. Like the way you're describing it, I'm wondering would would you be would it be fair to say that we put it in kind of the kind of Ash Barty esque kind of style, Carolyn Mukafer? A little bit, although she just those players have some more obvious weapons that you can point to. Like uh, with Ash, obviously you have the serve and the forehand. Those are those are still like pretty big weapons, I would say. Same thing with Mohova, like her forehand is a, is a pretty big weapon. Um, I don't know. Like I would say the male comfort is like Jensen Brooksby, but I don't know if there's any. Um, I don't know if she's kind of on her own a little bit in that regard. She's kind of like. And at least Mertens with like more variety. Mm. I don't know. Okay. Like, Mertens is a Grand Slam semi finalist because so. it's like it's like counter punching, but she's giving you different looks every single time. So it's like it's like kind of your Svitolina and Mertens, but just Wozniacki model, but with just I a lot do, more change ups of pace. I do enjoy watching the new version of Svitolina. So um, maybe I need to. I haven't watched a Kenin match in ages. Like. I missed the Ken and Goff match because I was at Wimbledon that day and I was watching outside courts and I couldn't find a spot on the big screen to watch it, but I gather it was a good one. Um, and you always think about Ken and being a scrapper, like so's Goff. So I want to see more matches between them because that could turn into a real street fight. Um, yeah. Okay. So lots of positives for Sophia Kenning going forward. Let's not put too much pressure on her um, kind of going forward. Um what would you say were the other kind of big stories coming out of San Diego other than the two finalists? Uh, well, Emma Navarro was a big one, getting to the semis. Um, she she qualified. She's obviously the daughter of Ben Navarro, who owns the Charleston tournament. 
Um, there's been some, she's been rising through the pro ranks more this year. Um, but mainly I think the big win was against Sakari in the, in the quarters where she got bageled in the second set. And then that was one of the higher quality sets of the tournament, that third set between those two, um, where they were just hitting the ball so big from the back of the court. Um, and just really, really good baseline battle in the third set where uh, it came down to the third set tiebreak. And that's where uh, her poise and her composure really impressed me because she's another player who just really doesn't show any emotion on the court. She's very kind of reserved and contained uh, and very stoic, I would say. Uh, and so that helps her in some in some big moments, particularly against Sakari, who was just a lot more highly stressed and wound up. And she played a very poor first three, four points of the tiebreak. And it was just too too big of a hole for her to come back. But I was impressed by what I saw from Navarro. She has a very good backhand return. She She hits, she goes big on the forehand when she needs to. She kind of has a very complete kind of all-round game. There's not one thing that she does particularly amazing that that stands out, but it's just it's just more how she's how she carries herself on the court. And I think uh it was just due for her to get a big result. So that was that was good to see because she gave me this one line in the in the press conference that really stood out. She said, I keep my standards very high, but my expectations really low. So I thought that kind of summed her up well. Um and then it was yeah. a good effort against Kennan also to come back and win the second set. She was down 5-1 in the third, but she made it close again and uh, forced Kennan to come up with some good stuff at the end to close it out, 6-4. So I would say she was one of the... She's also in the top 50 now. Um, and I think she's always going to get some help with, with wild cards and things like that just because of the background. But um, she's another one of those like Pagula who's very down-to-earth and humble despite her wealth. Interesting. And yeah, Ghost in the chat suggesting it should be uh, Baby Peg. Um, <laughs> but um, so it'd be interesting to see what happens when those two play each other. I mean, by the sound of it, Emma Navarro is going to be a nightmare draw, potentially, or a tough draw um, for people going into 1000s and majors, um, at least for the next six months or so while she stays top 50. I don't know, it depends on how long she's top 54, maybe three months. Like, she could be still top 50 by AO. Um, it depends on how the rest of the season plays out. But definitely in a major first round could be a, a tricky one for people to deal for a top player to deal with. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, and then I would say in the early rounds, it was good to see uh, Beatrice Haddad Maya live. Uh, because, you know, I've, I've seen her on TV, but TV just kind of doesn't do justice with her game because okay. she stands really close to the baseline, but she's also she's also hitting the ball a lot harder than I thought because it doesn't always come across on TV and it, she just looks like such a counter puncher. But then when I watch her play, I'm like, oh, she's very creative. She's using, she's opening up these angles really, really well. She's going down the line pretty often. Her backhand is really flat. Um, she also has a pretty good transition game um, and she's just very clever and she doesn't miss much. Like you really have to play, you really have to earn it. She kind of reminds me of like a, female Cam Nori when I watch her play because she just brings a certain kind of level and it's like if you want to be a top 10 player like you kind of have to go through her so she kind of reminds me of that and also just how she uses her uses the angles really well with her lefty serve um, and then she's she's being aggressive by standing up on the baseline and 
she doesn't have huge swings either. So she's able to just rush her opponents um, in, in different ways. It was it was fun to watch her play against Fernandez. There was just a lot of lefty versus lefty creativity. Fernandez did well to come back and win the second set. She was she had to save a match point and so that was that was a good I, I really wish I'd seen that match. Obviously I'm a Fernandez fan, but uh that when I saw that draw, I was like, oh please be on a time I could actually watch it. But they put it on at what would be like two, three a.m. my time. So, which is understandable because it's a, it's the, it would be the biggest match. You put it on at night, so you get the crowd, you get the views. Um, it her was biggest the right strength. Dark Maya for yeah. me is like her fitness. Yeah, like she could just go run and run and run for hours. It doesn't surprise me that most of the matches she plays are like three set wars <laughs> with the style because yeah, you can't plays. put her away. Yeah, because it's just so hard to get the ball by her. She defends really well. Um, her and Von Drusova are. Pretty good defenders. I would Can say. you imagine if those two played each other? Yeah, <laughs> it, would be, it would be like three hours. I mean, she already had like some those matches on the way to Roland Garros in the semis. Like, Sarah Sribis Tomo. Yeah, That was that was crazy. I mean, that just has four hours written all over it. And then I watched her play against Kostyuk, and that was that was interesting also because I guess uh, Kostyuk is another one of those players who just her mentality is a little bit fragile right now, but the game is there. You know what I mean? Like, I just feel like she hits the ball really big off both wings. She should be doing even better than she is. Um, granted, she's young. She's 21. But she's just a little too emotional. Like, she gets – the highs are really, really high. She celebrates, like, crazy after every single point. And then when she loses, it's just it's so much negativity to her box. Like, I could just hear all of it uh, because I was basically courtside for it. Like, pretty Anastasia close to Potopova is a similar player to that. Yes. Potopova and Kostya, very similar in that regard. And that's what happened to Potopova also in the – in the quarters that she lost, she was just Kennan was just a lot more more willing to dig in and just despite all the misses that she was having early on in that match, she was just shrugging those off easier and just yeah, um, the attitude was more positive. Yeah, so it was interesting to see some players up close live. I mean, how to admire um, uh, definitely someone I think is uh, often gets overlooked despite her. Her kind of keynote results. Um, you didn't get a press conference with her, did you? No, I didn't manage to actually. She didn't. No one. Uh, we requested her, but it was just so late when she finished her matches. Um, yeah, makes sense. That she just needed to recover. Yeah, that would make sense. I mean, talk to me. Talk to me a little bit about. We've talked a bit about. Um, obviously, you've watched certain players live and the experience of watching that, and it, it is interesting. Um, what was was this your first time actually covering a tournament? What was that like for you? Yeah, I've covered tournaments in like different settings. Like, uh, you know, for the US Open, I was doing it remotely as a research analyst. And then for Cincinnati, I was doing like graphics in production in the production folks uh, behind the courts uh, for the for the stats that you see on at the end of every set in the match and just logging individual point scores and, and stuff. So that was a different way of covering it. But this was... And, and I'd, I had been credentialed at San Diego before a couple of years ago, but that was when they were doing remote press conferences. So it wasn't nearly the same. But this time being on site was really cool because they don't do like the press conferences in a separate interview room. It's just outside um, in like this covered area, but it's outdoors and it's pretty close to the court. So you can sometimes it's hear the noise. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's probably the, the most annoying thing. All the players will say that. Um, everyone covering the tournament was saying it's just it's so close to the airport it's kind of an extension of the airport and you'll just hear planes constantly in the middle of answers or 
the middle of first and second serve sometimes, and the umpire has to stop the shot clock because it's just it's uh, it's so loud. Um, but 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 it was cool to have that player access, and because it was so close to the courts, and it was so close to the player locker room, and it was so close to where the communications person would come out and bring the players, you felt like you were right there with them the whole week, uh, because because of how the tennis center is structured and where the media room is. So that was that was pretty nice. And it it didn't feel like the questions were very high stake or there were major journalists on site, like writing for The Guardian or big international news publications. They were your local reporters, like for the San Diego Union Tribune, which is a newspaper that covers everything, not just tennis. Um, and then there were a few people, few others like from the Tennis One app or for tennis.com or tennis channel, but it was there weren't that many media members. So it felt like I could ask two or three questions and even get a follow-up if I wanted to. So so that, that was good. And I feel like the WTA comms director was good about keeping it short and concise, but also getting the most out of all the media that were trying to ask questions. So on average, the press conferences weren't longer than six minutes. Um, the longest press conference we did was actually Emma Navarro after the semifinal, which was nine minutes, which is crazy that she, uh, she gave us that much time, but... Uh, yeah, I I like the way that did they did it minus the planes. Yeah, I I have to say um, that sounds very similar to how uh, it was in Birmingham uh, when uh, I covered that, and I agree with you. Um, I think certainly the way the WTA in managing it uh, for a small tournament um, is pretty good, and certainly yeah, we we probably have less fewer tennis specific outlets in the UK. Um, whereas in America, in the US, probably you get a few more in there. So I can imagine it contributes to a great atmosphere where everyone's kind of on the same same page. They know what that they've got good boundaries um, in place uh, for everyone knows the kind of right questions to ask. And I have to say, actually, I think your questions were kind of on the money because you were actually asking about the matches a lot of the time um, yeah. compared to some of the other. I had to resist the urge to go too deep into the matches because I felt like the the best questions that they actually liked were the ones that had nothing to do with tennis. It was more like the off-court stuff or just oh, the players how, do you stay, how do you stay in the right frame of mind like when you're not, you know, in competition? Like, you know, I asked Kritikova, for instance, for rec- restaurant recommendations and she actually gave a pretty good answer about cocktail shrimp and Mexican food. And then I would just mix it up because then I would I would ask about because I wanted to kind of get a feel for like what were they thinking when they were down break points in the third set and when they lost that third set after having beat like you know what was going through their head and that's what I that's what I kind of wanted to know but if you dig so deep into the tactics uh, of it all like they're just not going to give you uh, mm. anything to work with but if you like um if you like if you're one of the first few ones to go and then you ask them right directly about the match then they'll be more they might be willing to give you something that you can like a good quote that you can work with for a good headline or like um, just maybe something a, a bit more low key. So top, top I kind tip. of learned that because top like Krajikova mm-hmm. was one of the players who uh, the first press conference that she did, I'll admit, uh, I was like, mm, this isn't going to go down really well because I don't think she's in the right kind of mood right now. But the more she started winning, the better her press conferences became because she was a much more engaged. She kind of grew into the tournament the way she grew into the media uh, in terms of providing really good answers as the week as the week went on because her mood was so good and she was just chilled. She was just loved the vibe of it all. And 
at the end, she was kind of cracking jokes with us even before we, we got started with the interviews. Actually, yeah, I, I that makes sense from, for, again, Krujika for being at Birmingham. Um, very similar experience doing that press conference with her um, and obviously get everything underway. Uh, as she went along, when, like not many people were requesting her, to be honest. So I don't yeah. think she gave many press conferences after that. But um, yeah, it was a great... Uh, but I, I agree with you and I can see why you would... You, the players would relax the more they win as well. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, but is right. Krujikova definitely um, very friendly um, as a default, I would say. Um, yeah. Just don't catch it too early. But it was, uh, That's kind of cool that the Birmingham event you covered, Krujikova did well in getting to the final and then now this one. <laughs> She's going to watch this and go, I need these people covering every event that I do. <laughs> Yeah. Um, actually, speaking of a lot of the uh, press conferences, I want—I will round off in San Diego as a tournament in a minute, but um, I think a lot of your press conferences, well, I think one of your, I can't remember whether it was the Zachary one or the Collins one, got a little bit more traction in light of the Halep case. Yeah, um, I think that was the Zachary one. It was the Zachary one. And um, yeah. I think Chris Clary retweeted it, maybe. Um, yeah. Someone someone did it, but it was... Um, that was interesting um seeing her answer um on the situation um yeah. but yeah um simona halep um obviously for those most people watching will know or listening will know um that she was handed a uh, four year ban um for doping uh, for doping um and obviously different players reacted in different ways um, so I, I, I that was highlighted by Zachary saying, oh, no, I'm scared of everything I take. And Colin's going, just kind of shrugging it off, kind of, oh, it's one of those things. We just deal with it. Mm -hmm. um, very interesting kind of player mentalities towards it um, as yeah. well. So um, give us your thoughts on, uh, give us your personal thoughts on the Halep situation, but also maybe any sense that you would have got on how the players are reacting to it. Yeah, the Halep uh, situation is a is a really complex one because it took a really long time for the decision to finally be out formally, but I can understand why, because the ITIA had to go through 8,000 pages, I think, of evidence from both Halep and also just from all, from, uh, just all the statements that they received. So I can understand that uh, the decision itself, I read somewhere that it was going to be even, even more, like in six years. So clearly uh, there was a lot of the drug in her system and there were some irregular irregularities in her biological passport with the blood samples, but also just the urine samples from March onwards, which is what they found uh, um, at the US Open when it came back positive. So, uh, and then I think she tried to argue that it was contaminated. Um, and uh, I think what we learned is that it, the there was just so much of it way above the normal levels for it to be, you know, just taken. Well, it, it had to be from another source, basically, than contamination, most likely. So I think we're just waiting for the CIS trial to see if it can be appealed. But she better have a really, really strong case because uh, the evidence so far doesn't look great for her in terms of being uh, in her favor. 
Um, I saw something that Darren Cahill said, but I think, I mean, Darren Cahill stopped working with her at the end of 2021. So he really, as far as like just his experience from her, that's all he, he could really say in terms of her character. Um, but it'll be, it'll be interesting to see like if anything actually happens with the CAS because four years is such a long time. Like that would be the end of her career effectively because she'd be what, 36 by then at the end of the four years. So yeah, uh, it's a tough one, but but at the same time, like you have to do it because you know integrity of the game, and you have to enforce the rules. And let's face it, that 2022 season, which is obviously there's no evidence that he was, she was doping before 2022. Um, she would have been caught. There would have something. Something would have come up by now if it had before before then. If it had, yeah. Um, uh, so. You know, there's we um just to dispel people who may be kind of saying that her grandson titles avoid, like there's just no evidence that she was doping before that when she was winning grandson titles. But that 2022 season was a pretty good one on the whole, up until the ban. Um, one thousand title in Canada, um, semi-finals at Wimbledon, semi-finals at Indian Wells. Yeah. You can they whilst it wasn't necessarily helping her dominate the tour, this wasn't a Lance Armstrong tour de France situation. Um you there could be an argument made that it was benefiting her. Now Halep is a top ten player naturally anyway. So it's difficult to say how much of a difference it made. But um, you know, it's it's one of those it's one of those situations, although obviously I think one of the report did say that uh, there was a lot of level, particularly high around Wimbledon in the US and she lost a sneaker in the first round of the US. Yeah. So um, doping doesn't automatically mean you're going to win. Um, but I agree with you that, yeah, if she can't um, clear her name, then yeah, her career is pretty much done. She, she well, not done. She could probably carry on a couple more years, Kanepi style, um, but wouldn't be contending for the big titles anymore. Yeah, it would be tough also with her style of game um, to just like come back into it at thirty six. Um, would you not say anything about Kanepi though? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I guess Kanepi is a conundrum. Yeah, Kanepi conundrum. That's a. It's a good uh, alliteration there. Um, yeah, I think I think we're kind of on the same page, and I, I am. I don't want to go too deep into it. I'm. Yeah. Uh, I'm a. I'm just disappointed, to be honest, because. Yeah. You know, I did. I'm. I liked Halep. I like Halep. Um, as a, a not, she was never one of my favourites, but you know, always thought she was, uh, good for the game. Um, in terms of personality, in terms of the difference she brought, I always thought she underperformed in her career. Um, but you know, uh, just always put herself in winning positions and only took half the opportunities. Um, but yeah, so interesting. But yeah, I think my other question was, you know, uh, do you think that most players are going to take the Sakari? Attitude or the Collins attitude? Uh, Colin, it's either Collins of the shrugging off, or, or, or maybe the extreme usually Bouchard attitude um, from the Sharapova days. Um, yeah, I think most players are going to have the are, are not going to have much sympathy for her. If I'm being honest, um, 
at, at least that's the impression that I got. I think Collins definitely didn't. Um, Sakari, I think she can. She was talking about how like the the app, the whereabouts app, is not um, is not fully functional all, all the time, and she's had some cases where she's she wakes up in the middle of the night and has to decide, oh, do I go to the restroom now or do I wait till the doping comes? So you know, she 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 sympathized with her in the sense that it's stressful, but she mm-hmm. also didn't like directly comment on help specifically. So I'm not sure if her answer was just a lot more general about like the the testing protocol. But I think most players would would probably take the Collins route just because, yeah. I mean, they they, they also want to, you know, they they want to talk about how it's important for the integrity of the game and. And they, they kind of want to focus more on that. Um, some players might get a little bit shady about it um, and and tweet something or the other, like Bouchard or even Serena um, with her tweet. Oh, yeah. But uh, so, so there's going to be some of that. But uh, and, you know, that'll, that'll definitely start some conversations on Twitter and the fan bases won't like it, just as was the case with, uh, with Sharapova. But uh, with Sharapova, at least she was able to kind of clear her name earlier on. And it was a drug that was legal for 11 years. And it just was taken off the list for, you know, for the three weeks that she did take it. And she kind of owned up to it, admitted fault, then got her band reduced. So we'll see if Halep is able to clear her name in that sense. Although I think this will be harder than the Sharapova one. And yeah, at the moment, we have to wait and see, but it just, it's not looking good. No, it's not. So let's talk about happier things. San Diego. Let's go back to sunny San Diego. Um, the meaning of the place will depend on what films you watched. Um, but uh, with, I guess, with San Diego, let's talk about the tournament. Um, do you do you think it's going to be a strong warm up for Indian Wells in twenty twenty four? Given it's being moved to like the week before um, in the calendar. Yeah, at first I was really happy to hear that, but then I also realized that there's two two one thousands in the Middle East, the weeks before, because mm-hmm. um, Doha is a one thousand and Dubai is also a one thousand. So I do wonder if a lot are they of the definitely not alternating are, still? I think starting next year. So this is what uh, what I heard from one of the WTA people yesterday in the media room, and he was saying that you know starting next year it's going to be one two one thousands back to back in the Middle East, wow. and then the week the week after will be San Diego. So you got to wonder if some of the players will, um, if this tournament will take a hit because of that. But I really hope not because, um, yeah, like it has a really good chance to be a strong buildup, like for the ATP, like with Acapulco, Indian Wells, and Miami. And obviously they also have Dubai, but uh, I'm wondering if maybe the players will lose early in Dubai. Maybe they'll have a stronger week. And so we're, it's going to be tough because they're going to want to prioritize Indian Wells and Miami. I would think over over the 500 in San Diego, but I really hope for the tournament's case um, with all the marketing that's going to go into it the next five months, certainly. And also just uh, because it's, you know, players will have a chance to also get there early and just use it as a warm up. So, yeah, I, I tell you what, that is just making the tennis calendar feel even more packed. You've got January Australian swing, February, you've got back-to-back 1,000. So this is just WTA calendar. I'm not thinking about the ATP right now. Sunshine double in March, April, Madrid and uh, April, you're going to be like, is probably more of a, a down month, but you've still got Stuttgart and Madrid. And then May is Rome into Roland Garros, then into the grass season, then to the US swing with the Olympics sometimes, definitely next year. And then, yeah, it's just, it's 
it's like month after month after month of just constant. Um, yeah, that's, I'm not going to say as a fan, that's a good thing because you've got a big tournament to look forward to each month. Um, but as a player, that sounds uh, exhausting. And maybe that would explain why the, the restriction of 250s for the WTA would avoid top player burnout because then top they're just focusing on the 1000s and above and maybe the odd 500. Um, oh, yeah. Well, in, in any case, there will be all like top 30 players. So that's, I guess that's a good part about it. Yeah. And it, I, I was actually surprised to see that the field was as strong as it was this year too, because you still had nine of the top 20. And, um, you know, we didn't have the usual, like, you know, your top six or top top five, I guess. But despite that, I was I was pretty happy. I, I'm pretty happy overall with the depth right now at the top of the WTA to where, like, I feel confident that we're going to have a pretty good end of the tournament, even if, like, the quote-unquote highly ranked players in the top 10 are not in it, like we saw this week. Yeah, definitely um, positive to come out that I completely agree. Like, the, we were talking about it, like, look, even at the top 50, you've got players like Navarro and Kenin, and um, they're going to be worth watching at any tournament you go to. Um, so before we maybe wrap up on some on sort of general points outside of San Diego and Halep and all that, um, you've obviously covered San Diego before um, when it, uh, multiple times, you've probably visited tournament several times it's it's pretty local for you right like what makes it a tournament worth visiting there's going to be people on the sort of west side of the u.s where maybe that's their closest event i think the location is pretty good it's fairly close to the beach it's fairly close to some um, some touristy destinations uh there's there's a theme park right there called sea world which uh, yeah which which there's a lot of water rides even some roller coasters and so for the kids, you know, it, it could be a good way to kind of group it with the tennis. So, and, and then there's plenty of good food places, Mexican food. Uh, I think just in general, the fans that come, they seem to come from Latin American countries as well. And just, they're, they're more willing to make the trip because they can, they can make a vacation out of it. So I think that's, that's a good thing. The tennis center itself, there's a lot of practice courts. The facility is fairly big. Um, the stadium uh, they've done a good job in terms of when the tournament is not on versus when the tournament's on to make it bigger and better. The sponsors are uh, more more kind of local and well-known this year. So there really a lot of time and energy goes in terms of investing money to make this tournament as good as it can be. So uh, those are all some of the those are all some of the good things about it. The fact that it's WTA only and the draw size is smaller. Like in the terms, in terms of it's like a twenty-eight player draw, so you know that every single day you're gonna see, you're gonna see top players no matter what. Especially the kind of round of sixteen day, that's like a really good day to go because it's like the perfect mix of like you'll get to watch all the matches, but also you'll get, um, you'll get kind of the early round clashes, but you'll also get like maybe one or two matches that could be match of the tournament, um, and then you also get to be pretty up close with the person with the players, um, and and practices and. And yeah, I mean the the players generally feel like they're pretty close to the fans, and the the food on site is is uh, is is pretty decent too. Um, so yeah, I think I, I think they've they've done a good job in terms of building it up from before. Like because I only know the event from having played it in juniors, um, so I played on a lot of those courts, but not when <laughs> not when there were ATP WTA events. But they 
but they have the experience of having hosted like for instance girls nationals or 16s and 18s which the winner of that usually gets a wild card into the US Open so um and they have they have a lot of money backing it and also like USDA San Diego California Southern California Tennis Association so yeah i, I trust the people who are in charge of 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 the event and i have faith that it's going to keep getting bigger and 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 better every year in terms of yeah like growing women's sport yeah i certainly think that moving it to where they are has more potential than risk yeah. um i think given they're right after the us open at the minute um yeah having it in san diego is like a california swing as a warm up to indian wells yeah. Um, I think there will be some players who would definitely be up for taking that as an opportunity. Ghost wants to know how sure. you did in juniors. Um, I did well in like 12s and 14s. I would say that was kind of my best stretch before I was 15 or 16. After that, I sort of started prioritizing school a bit more uh, just because like it, it became more important to do well academically, try to get into a good college. I also was struggling with a bit of a knee injury by the time I was like around 16. So I had to take about six or seven months off for that with rehab and, and stuff. But I found a way to kind of just play at a decent level, keep it active as much as I can. Um, and uh, yeah, and then I just was was playing competitively. Even if I wasn't in tournaments, I would just sign up for leagues. I would play some matches. Um, and I played a little bit in university too. So I think I was all right in juniors. Um, I probably didn't uh, in, invest in it completely full-time like some of the other players I was playing against were, but I got a cool chance to play against some players, which later on became started to... Uh, you know, win a lot more big titles. So that was that was cool. I have some good memories from it. Okay. Right. I appreciate we're getting on for an hour. I do want to touch on Asaka. Appreciate neither of us have seen it because <laughs> you were on site in San Diego yeah. and Asaka was in the middle of the night for me or the night sessions were on when I was supposed to be at work. Um, yeah. So um, couldn't watch any of it. So rather than focusing on the story of the tournament... I guess I would say just one more thing before we yeah. move on, just uh, to kind of put a bow on, on San Diego. It was also really cool to see how many people showed up for the doubles. Okay. Uh, just supporting the doubles every single night. Uh, stadiums felt pretty packed and because they wanted to get the most out of the ticket. And also I think what was riding this whole uh, doubles this week was Coco Vandaway because it was her last tournament uh, yeah. officially and she only entered the doubles and because she was playing against playing with Danielle Collins... Uh, they had a huge team supporting them this this week, and they were able to keep their kind of farewell run going all the way to the final. So that added a lot of enjoyment because they, they were in the final playing against Kritikova and Sinyakova. Of course, Collins also had a pretty good week in, in singles, which I think kind of helped in uh, in terms of being the right partner for Coco. They'd actually never played with each other before this week, even though they'd, they'd obviously known each other and friends from Beijing King Cup and stuff. So... It, it was it was a, a good end to the tournament because Collins and Vanderway reached the final. Uh, and uh, there was like a retirement tribute as well on court for for Vanderway and celebrating her career and stuff, which like, I guess on the court, she did some good things in 2017 and 18, like career-wise, um, tennis-wise. And I think now she's just going to go straight into broadcasting and this oh, yeah, was it for her. So. She's been working for the BBC for the last year or two and I actually think yeah. she's a pretty decent commentator. Yeah, um, she speaks I'm, well. 
Yeah, she does. I mean, I know she's not everyone's favorite person. Yeah, but... I was just I was just gonna caveat because of like some political opinions and stuff like that. But I firmly think like just we can put that aside and talk about her tennis because I think you know it was it was pretty cool to just watch it in person and she was nice and everything to the media and and the press conference. So she definitely added something I would say to this to this tournament because you know she we know her in San Diego. Uh, so that's that's something I just wanted to say because it's not always that you that the doubles gets the most attention, no, uh, and, it, and it absolutely should. But you know, I felt compelled to watch more doubles this week because of the storyline and also just seeing Krachikova and Sinyakova do their thing up in person is just it's just amazing what they've achieved as a duo. I mean, they're probably one of the best doubles teams ever, right? Ever, yeah. And I think like they're the only the. Krachikov was only the second active player behind Venus Williams to have won like a major in mixed and uh, doubles and singles. And, you know, she's now, she won the French Open, she won doubles and singles here. She won wins doubles and singles again. And I think they've won every major all twice, except for the US Open, which they won once. So they're seven time major champions. They've won Olympic gold. They won the WTA finals. And yeah, they just, they make it look so easy, but it's, it's really not. Some weeks they had some really tough competition as well. And yeah, they certainly did at times in this tournament too, but it was just cool to see it. Yeah. Okay. Watch more doubles. Watch more doubles. I'm always up for a bit of doubles after today tonight's Davis Cup epic um, in the, the men's side. Um, yeah. All right. So definitely worth mentioning the doubles. Let's also mention the winner of Osaka, Ashlyn yeah. Kruger, 19 years old, American beat Zulin in the final, um, wasn't expecting that, thought it would go to an, uh, a Chinese or Japanese player. Um, that title, you know, that uh, to a good warm-up. Um, lots of fuss being made about Ashton Kruger. Obviously, she's 19. She's the same age as Goff, um, or both born in 2004 anyway. Um, and... I was I was basically going to ask is yeah she's she's basically seems to be breaking through at sort of a more standard age than Goff did, um, but have you ever seen Kruger play, um, and how much hype should we be giving her? Um, I think she's worthy of the hype in that she didn't drop a set this week and she's already won a WTA title at nineteen, so that's uh, that, that's kind of impressive and she's in the top seventy five now, so. Uh, I think I think her trajectory has been fairly steady this year. She won a she's won a one twenty five already this year too. Uh, she beat Tatiana Maria I think in the final like seven five in the third. Um, she's also won some matches I, I think in at tour level. She won a match in Montreal. She, and, and this week um, to beat lose Su Lin is also a pretty good effort because Su Lin's had a pretty pretty good year and. She just hits a really big ball. She's just really, uh, really aggressive and just. I haven't seen her play a ton, but I will say she's a good like power player. Like she, she has a big serve, big ground strokes. She definitely has weapons that would see her in, uh, in the top into the top fifty like very quickly. Like maybe even by the end of the year, who knows? Um, so, and I think she's her game is like made for hard courts. It seems like um, so. We're definitely seeing a lot of up and coming. American women at the minute. Obviously, Coco Goff has been up and coming for years, um, but uh, you've got Kruger, you've got Navarro, um, it's probably Peyton Stearns after the US. Um, yeah. That's probably exciting for 
um, American tennis fans. At least I hope so, unless they're just that obsessed with only waiting for a male champion. No, I think we have we have some good uh, we have some good depth on the WTA. Like it's it's always been the WTA for us in the last twenty years. Like our male players have just not been delivering consistently. Like our our biggest stories are usually oh look, there's three of them in the quarters. Whereas on the women's side, it's like well yeah, but they've like dominated tennis <laughs> the last twenty years. So um, yeah, we've got some we've got some good names, and they've also, we've also got some good names in. Guadalajara, we touched a little, which is the tournament that's starting tonight, actually, or my time, like right now, I don't know what time it is. Um, it's, it's 20 past 11 for me. Um, but it, the, the, today, Guadalajara got underway. Um, and uh, we talked a little bit about the draw. Obviously, the top seven are missing. Uh, the top seeds are out of form. Um, yeah, this draw is wide open, right? <laughs> Yeah, I feel like this is going to be a time that someone else wins. Someone who's like kind of not on our radar is going to win it this time. Like maybe an unseated player. Uh, okay. I'm very curious to see how Jabor bounces back this week. It was a pleasure to talk to her like before the tournament started, and she's just you know she was bringing her usual positive vibes, and she's just uh, it's been kind of a tough time for her with the sickness, and then she had some back issues against Potapova in San Diego. But I'm wondering if that's starting to get better for her. She plays Alicia Parks in the first round, so another like kind of tough opponent, but uh, if she can get the serve back, and then I think, uh, and if she's feeling good physically, then she should be able to get through that match. But with her top section, she also has like Hadad Maya in there, and Alexandrova. I would say if Jabor is at her best, she has a good chance of going pretty deep and maybe even winning it, but because she's not, I think it's just going to open up the draw a bit more for Garcia is kind of a mystery to me because like she played a very good match against Thon this week and a very good third set. And that was some of her 2022 level, but then the next match just comes out and she just looks lost um, in terms of, in terms of tactics. And we know she's kind of very stubborn about her return position and there's just, she's just not able to limit the unforced errors right now. It's just a bit too high. So I would say maybe it's a good chance for someone like, Maybe Madison Keys can continue her US Open run and maybe she could have maybe like Keys and Azarenka or Benchich, like those three type of players I'm thinking could do well this week. Just because they've had previous success in Mexico as well, which I think like helps them in their favor and also just yeah, like the rest of the field I'm just not so sure about in this draw. Keys is my title pick um when I did my draw, but I was looking through my draw going, this is gonna be absolute chaos. And I got down to my quarterfinals and semifinals, I was like yeah, Keys is the one with the momentum here. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, she, and she's been having a pretty good second half of the year. Quarterfinals at Wimbledon as well. So, yeah, yeah there's a 1,000 title in her. Um, yes. J.I. on um, X also had um, the same similar prediction. Oh, um, did he pick so, Keys to win it? Yeah, he's got, he's got Keys winning it, um, beating uh, Azarenka in the final. Um so he's big on Azarenka. Um, however, he and I both invested in Sloane Stevens as well, who's a bit of a Guadalajara mm. specialist. Yes. Um, Stevens, all unseeded. Um, she, so J.I.'s got her in his, in his semis. I've got her in my final. Um, Benchich is one I think could do well, but she's blowing very hot and cold at the minute. And I yeah. don't know where she's at. If she's on, yeah, she's a threat. Um, but she's very difficult to predict. 
and where she is. Plushkova might be on for a good run. She has a decent draw. Um, yeah, there's yeah. um there's some opportunities for maybe maybe not someone to necessarily break through, although definitely there, but maybe for someone who's a bit more of an established name to kind of relight the fire, um, as it were. Um, if Max was here, I'm pretty sure we'd be getting that song in the chat. Um, but um, uh, but yeah, at the minute, I think I'd agree that the person with the most momentum to take advantage of is Madison Keys. Yeah, I would also say Danielle Collins. Actually, she she has the momentum, but if she can just had admire in round one. Yeah, that that's, that's a the, fun match. <laughs> that's the, that's going to be awesome. And then the winner of that could play maybe Peyton Stearns too, who's who has a a good amount amount of momentum right now. Um yeah, yeah. I, I would say I would say the early rounds are, are always where it's at, like like usual. So there's yeah. there's some opportunity, even someone like Fernandez. I saw enough good there yeah. this week where I where I'm like, okay, actually like you know she can put together some three or four wins in a row it wouldn't stop me. Fernandez has always shown that opportunity. She's just always had a tough draw really quick. Yeah. Um, I agree. Fernandez has also had. She's also had some Mahara. success in, in Mexico. She's won the two titles that she won were in Mexico, right? Yeah, M Monterrey, I think. Monterrey, okay, yeah. Um, I think she's got a decent enough draw. She can get a win or two under her belt and maybe get something going. I would be well up yeah. for that. I'd love to see Leila Fernandez winning a thousand. Yeah, she was such a draw favorite. She was such a crowd favorite all, um, year or two. I think pretty much everywhere. Mm. I think. What have I got on? I would say um, another popcorn match to watch: Townsend versus Tomjanovic. Yes. Yeah. yeah. If I'm if that's on my time zone, I'm definitely watching that. Uh, yeah. For for sure, that's. Uh, I'm always up for watching Taylor Townsend. Um, yeah. uh, but against Isla, who's trying to come back, like there's going to be some fire in that match. Um, yeah. There was another match that's like, oh, um, I don't have to draw in front of me. There's a Mexican player who's playing Eugenie Bouchard in round one and I don't know if that's going to be yeah. a great match but I can imagine that could be a headline maker of Mexican wins around <laughs> at, at, at the biggest tournament in Mexico yeah I think you're talking about Renata Zarazua yes yeah, Zarazua I don't know I've never watched she's had a lot of success at the around. ITF she's had a lot of success at the ITF level but I haven't seen her play like a top uh, a top WTA season pro yet uh, in a big time match, so that would be that would be kind of fun to watch. And just be sure all the locals will get behind her. Yes, I guess so. <laughs> um, I mean, okay, Bouchard from 2013, 14, 15. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before sure. all the injuries, it's still also a mystery whether she's actually going to play tennis next year, Bouchard. But yeah, I because like I thought she'd retired and then she turns up in the draw. So, um, I don't yeah. know. I think she's like playing pickleball next year. She's on the tour, but I don't know if she's going to be doing tennis at the same time or she'll, she'll definitely play through this year, but I don't know about next year. To see how that one goes, how that develops and keep sticking with us for all the developments. We will be back next week for more WTA Weekly. We will round up um, the Guadalajara tournament and be talking about who the eventual winner is. Will it be Madison Keys? Will it be Leila Fernandez? Will it be Sloane Stevens? Or will someone break through and win their first big title? Vanch, thank you so much for coming on and chatting with me about San Diego. And thank you for all of the content that came out. I was absolutely loving all the press conferences. Um, 
getting to know a bit more about the players um, and hearing hearing your questions. So um, always great talking tennis and uh, great job this week. Thanks a lot, man. I really appreciate it. And it's fun to talk tennis with you always. So anytime. Right. And it's always fun talking tennis with you all as well. Um, so until next time, keep on talking tennis. If you enjoyed this video, make sure you hit that like button. Don't forget to subscribe and click that notification bell so you don't miss out on all things tennis. Sports Social Podcast Network.